guy they call a blue moon a blue moon, they're lying to you. Nobody really knows where that came from. A blue moon is when a full moon happens twice in one month. It was on August the 2nd as well as this last Friday night, and it's very rare. Well, for those of you that are visiting, we're in a series, we're finishing up a little mini-series on the primary personalities behind the Reformation. And we've been taking a look of who were these men that the Lord used. Now, again, as we said, there's all sorts. The question is, was the German priest by the name of Martin Luther, who said it's about faith and heart, you got to love the Lord with all your heart, Lehev in the Hebrew, the French attorney, philosopher, theologian, John Calvin, who said you have to love the Lord with all your mind. Nefesh is the soul. It means your heart and your mind. This morning we take a look at a Scotsman by the name of John Knox, who would definitely say you need to love the Lord with all your me'od, is the Hebrew, all of your strength. Tov me'od is thank you so much, and much is when you love God with action. We saw, did the Reformation make them, or did they make the Reformation? And the answer is yes. You know, sometimes uh, we expect God just to do things, and sometimes it's up to us. I told you before of the guy that was breaking into a house, whether down the valley or not, and he was tiptoeing around, loading stuff up, and all of a sudden he heard behind him, Jesus is watching. And he thought, that was weird, and he kept loading stuff, and heard, Jesus is watching. And he turned around, and it was a parrot. And he got stupid parrot. And so he loaded up here, Jesus is watching, and he's loading it up. All of a sudden, they heard this grrr, and he turned around, and there was a pit bull. And the parrot said, sick him, Jesus. <laughs> you and I, when we come to life, well, I know, it's a long way to get to the point. We very often want God, sick him, Jesus, go get him. And sometimes God says, great, go ahead. Knox was someone, as we saw with all the reformers, who was obsessed about wanting to change the church. They were Catholic. The Greek Orthodox and the Western Latin Church had always broken off in the 1100s. But they didn't want to leave the church necessarily. The Catholic Church is always trying to get back to the Apostolic Church, whether it's the Dominicans trying or the Benedictine or the Franciscans or the Jesuits. They're always trying to purify, but they wouldn't leave the church. The Reformers said, no, we have got to step outside of the league in order to form a church more New Testament style. And John Knox was someone who, this fiery preacher, born in one of the most tumultuous centuries of all time outside of the 20th century, the 16th century, and in a really rough neighborhood called Scotland at that time. Two great truths about his life as we get ready to come to this table together, this communion table. Sola fide, it is by faith alone and the priesthood of all believers. The church is, and he called the Kirk, Scottish, the Kirk is not the pastor, it is the people of God. The pastor is important in leading every Presbyterian church. You know, when we bring the pulpit out for the 9 o'clock service, it's always off-center. Any Presbyterian church you go in, the communion table is center, not the sermon. Why? Because you are not people of the pastor, you and I are people of the covenant. And it is in this great power that Knox will start this great move. His life had so much going on. And for you to get a little snapshot of it, take a look at this. Our drama department's done a really nice job with these montages. What's this? 
1546, the Protestant Reformation, ignited by Martin Luther and John Calvin, spread throughout Europe. The Church of England split from the Catholic Church 12 years prior, and though Scotland to the north maintained its Catholic identity, the rumblings of Reformation there grew. The dam burst with the burning at the stake of a young Scottish reformer, George Wishart, under the orders of Cardinal Beaton. In retaliation, a group of Protestant conspirators assassinated Cardinal Beaton and took refuge in his castle, St. Andrews. The castle quickly became sanctuary to Scottish Protestants and their families, including a fiery young Catholic priest and follower of the martyred George Wishart named John Knox. Knox served as the chaplain to the Protestant rebels, preaching that the Bible was the sole authority and that man is justified by faith alone. The Catholic Church of France had a keen interest in Scotland, a fellow Catholic stronghold to the north of their Anglican adversary, England. They were not about to let Scotland slip through their fingers to the Protestant movement. In June of the following year, galleys from France besieged the castle, forcing the surrender of Protestants and taking them prisoner as galley slaves. After 18 months rowing the French galleys and in poor health, Knox gained his freedom and traveled throughout England in connection with the Reformed Church. After five years in England, and having heard of John Calvin's work in Geneva, Knox went to Switzerland and there fermented the Protestant ideas that would later define him. In 1559, Knox returned to a Scotland on the edge of civil war. On one side, the Protestant uprising. On the other, the Catholic government, which was now heavily influenced by France. Knox was immediately thrust into the leadership on the reformers' side, railing against the idolatries of the Catholic Church. With the help of the English, Scotland was able to kick out the French. Knox and his reformers established Protestantism as the national religion. He and his associates drew up the constitution of this new church, the first book of discipline, which detailed the organization and finances of the church, as well as setting up public education and systemic aid for the poor. He also wrote the Book of Common Order, which regulated worship and gave a high position to laity. These policies didn't all have a chance to be enacted, however, because in 1561, Mary, Queen of Scots, arrived from France. Having a Catholic queen rule over a now Protestant Scotland caused several skirmishes in the land. Knox himself was a thorn in the side of Mary, towing the line of treason as he rallied against her in person and from the pulpit to the end of his days. In 1572, Knox passed away, having laid the foundation of the Presbyterian Church and as a fervent voice of change and freedom from unjust government to the end. Mary, Queen of Scots, said she feared the prayers of John Knox more than 10,000 troops. He was all the time trying to convert her to this new Protestant movement, and she wouldn't. Really tumultuous time. But what do we find? I mean, these reformers, they were sinner and saint like you and me. They weren't infallible. They were really giants of faith in many ways. But the legacy they give. You're going to see tonight on the television this coming week, and you did this last week, one of the legacies of the reform movement. Democracy. The democracy that really that you and I have that started coming over to here was the reformers because church and state, remember, were the same. And again, it's not about the divine right of kings or the divine right of priests, pastors. It's about God in his kirk. And one of the passages that moved all three of the reformers is found in 1 John. If you have your Bible, turn with me over to the book of 1 John 
and the third chapter, page 991 in your pew Bible. John, ironically, is the only one of the twelve standing by the foot of the cross of Jesus. Of course, he was a teenager. Maybe he wasn't as much a threat to the Romans. But he was willing to die for Christ. He's the only one who was not martyred. All the other twelve have been brutally martyred by the Romans by this time. And John is an old man writing to his church, probably in Ephesus, but it would be circulated, says this in verse 18. Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. By this we know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God. And we receive from Him whatever we ask, because we obey His commandments and do what pleases Him. That's a great passage, that even when your heart condemns you, you still know you're forgiven. Even when the accuser of the brethren, Satan, the accuser, says, you know you blew it. You know you knew better than that. John says, even when our hearts condemn us, we stand on the basis of what Christ has done. This is the fuel that will fire the engines of the reformers. That it's not about you doing penance. It's not about how much money you put in the plate. For some of you, that's really good. It's not about you out there, how many good deeds you do. It's about what Christ has done. John Knox, he was born probably in 1505. We don't know for sure. The only thing we know about his mother, her maiden name was Sinclair. She dies when Knox is a young boy. William... Knox, his father, raises the boys. He's a farmer. By the way, at this time, if you weren't a farmer, you were in mercantile. You were selling goods. If you weren't in that, you were in the priesthood. Because church and state, if you wanted to become literate and read and know all the education, were in these schools. And so that's why so many of them were headed for the priesthood. Well, Knox hangs around a guy by the name George Wissert. He was, of course, a Catholic, and he starts saying that the church has to change. Cardinal Beaton, and when we were there in St. Andrews, you see this place where it took place, comes out and arrests him, and he has him executed. Cardinal Beaton was a bad guy. He had so many concubines, he has at least ten children from prostitutes that we know of. But it's a political appointment. Well, Wishart and them are going, this guy's got to go. He had a rowdy bodyguard by the name of John Knox, who drew his sword more than once to protect him. Well, Cardinal Beaton arrests Wishart, asks him to recant, and he says no. He burns him at the stake, and a typical Scottish day, which is called rainy, they had to light the fire four times to kill him. It kept going out, and he would not recant. Knox watches all this. In fact, he was going to die with him, but Wishart told him, One body is enough for a sacrifice. Go home to your lads. Because Knox already had three young boys at this time. So he goes and he starts preaching. And he starts preaching from there. He goes to St. Andrews. By the way, when uh, Knox was there, golf had been outlawed for 60 years. Because so many people were playing this new game, they weren't practicing archery. And when the kingdom of Scotland went to war against the English, they needed to have the good with the longbow. So golf was outlawed. If you ever see me play, you know why it would be outlawed. But as he comes and he starts teaching this great truth, he goes down to Geneva, meets Calvin, goes back to Scotland, back to Geneva, back to Scotland. 
And as we said last week with Luther, or with Calvin and Geneva in Strasbourg, Knox with Geneva in Scotland, God sometimes has us go back to the same places, but going in a different way for a different time. And his big thing is God moves. Haddon Robinson, the great preacher, said that God interact or intervene in life in three different ways. The first way is intervention. God moves, you and I do nothing. Moses, parting of the Red Sea, God does it. God says, walk. Raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Nobody did anything but God the Father. That's God acting on our behalf, and I love it when God intervenes. Sometimes God does interaction, though, where he has you. David has to stand there as a young teen with the sling as Goliath's coming at him. God will move it, but he's got to do it. Samson has to pick up the jawbone of a jackass. The Holy Spirit will come upon him, and he'll slay a thousand Philistines, but he's got to do the swinging. Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish from the boy before he feeds. He has the servants pour water into the jars, then he makes it wine. He puts clay on the man's eyes rather than just healing him on the spot, says, you go participate in this. And there's times that you and I go, go get him, God, and God says, you're right. Go get him. It's God's strength, but he's interacting with you and me. But then the other way that God moves is a way that's the richest but the toughest. Inner, I-N-N-E-R-vention. Jesus says, three times, Father, I've done everything you have ever asked. Take this cup from me. And three times, God the Father says, no. Paul says, I have a thorn in the flesh sent by Satan. And three times I sought the Lord to remove it. And three times God said, my grace is sufficient for you. No. This must be endured. This can be endured. All those are God's move, and this is what the reformers are saying. Sometimes we got to do the work. Sometimes God does it. Sometimes we have to just chillax in the peace and the knowledge that God is sovereign and taking care of things. I don't like those moments any more than you. I like God to come to the rescue. But when I look back at my life, it's when God gives me the patience and the peace and the faith to pull the trigger and step out, even when it's scary at the time, that I see that the Holy Spirit does his best move. So not only sola fide, faith alone, the trigger of sola gratia, grace alone, but the kirk is the Lord and his people, not the pastor. So they look around at the church and they realize there's both sinner and saint sitting there. In each individual, but more than others. Like they say, not just sitting in a church doesn't make you saved any more than sitting in a garage makes you a Prius. It has to be something that takes care inside. The Scots Confession, we have 11 confessions in our church. Different statements at different times in the river of church history. Some of them contradict themselves. We certainly don't believe verbatim. We don't think the Pope is the Antichrist, but it says that in the confession. But look what he says here about the church when he takes a look around. Although the word of God truly preached, the sacraments rightly administered and discipline executed according to the word of God are certain and infallible signs of the true Kirk. Pause. When you get in your small group this week, are you a church? When you go to lunch today and talk about things and sitting over the table down at Jerry's Deli, are you the church? 
Knox would say, no, you're a part of the church. But to have a church, the word of God has to be rightly given, the sacraments rightly given, and church discipline, accountability. Then you have the presence of the church. But he goes on to say, we do not mean that every individual person in the company is a chosen member of Christ Jesus. We acknowledge and confess many weeds and tares are sown among the corn and grow in great abundance in its midst. And that the reprobate may be found in the fellowship of the chosen and may take an outward part with them in the benefits of the word and sacraments. But since they only confess God for a time with their mouths and not their hearts, they lapse and do not continue to the end. Therefore, they do not share the fruits of Christ's death, resurrection, and sin. So what he's saying, pause, is he goes, when you look around, there's a lot of people sitting next to you that are really sleazes. Go ahead, point to something right here. Right now, go ahead. That there's no proof because you're sitting in a church together. But God knows, and he goes on. But if such unfeignedly believe with the heart and boldly confess the Lord Jesus with their mouths, they'll certainly receive his gifts. Firstly, in this life, they shall receive remission of sins and that by faith in Christ's blood alone. For those sins shall remain and continually abide in our mortal bodies, yet it shall not be counted against us, but be pardoned and covered with Christ's righteousness. Pause. That's that whole thing you read there. Even Paul says, I find this within me. I want to stop sinning, but I can't. Who will save me from this wretched body? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. This is the juice of the Reformation. That you and I, we, God doesn't want us to sin. He takes it very seriously. But we have this congenital disease, and it's the work of Christ. Finally, Secondly, in the general judgment, there shall be given to every man and woman resurrection of the flesh. The sea shall give up her dead and the earth and those who are buried with her. So as we take a look and we see that in this great thing of the church, people were here long before you were that started a church. People were here in 1900 in Los Angeles that got together with the Los Angeles Presbytery and they planted at that time a church and they were going to call it, you know right now you're not in Bel Air. Bel Air's on the other side of Mulholland. They were going to call it Encino Presbyterian, but there's already an Encino Presbyterian. So they met in the grade school of Bellagio with Bel Air Presbyterian 56 years ago. And after you and I are long gone, if Christ doesn't return, God's kirk, his church will continue on. And you and I have this little part to play in it. We are an ark in the waterfall. None of us are permanent. But the ark continues on. I told you one time that uh, my stepdad, Steve Timko, is a son of a Czech immigrant, wonderful man, hard worker. But I was doing landscaping one time and he said, hey, Mark, go get my dad's shovel in the pickup. I thought, what, the shovel must be, what, a hundred years old? So I went looking around, and there's this shiny new shovel there. And I said, it's not there. It's just this one. He goes, no, that's it. And I go, this is your father's sh- shovel? He goes, yep. I go, how come it looks like it's never been used? He goes, it's had five handles and three heads, but that's the same shovel that my father used. <laughs> and in a sense, he's right. There were different handles and heads in the same tool that God continues to use. One of my great concerns in life, as life's been going on, is that the clergy in America, I've always had a heart for fellow pastors, whoever she or he is, and what's going through life. I, uh, last Sunday night, uh, I can, I think I can share this, I had a Catholic priest come here after the service and said, uh, in my uh, prayer time, the Lord told me to come talk with you, and I said, 
well, I'd like to talk to you, but I have to go do a game show called Are You Smarter Than a Pastor? He just went Protestants. But anyway, as we prayed together and in my life, I find this strange moving of God in my life. This last year, I've had a couple different seminaries ask if I would come and to be their president and saying no. Uh, and yet there is this sense of how do you help them? Do you know right now, 65%, according to Pew Research, 65% of the clergy in America, if you asked them, would you do something else, they said yes, if they had the skills or opportunity. Six out of ten pastors standing right here doing what I'm doing this morning said, dear God, if I could do something else, I would. It's so brutal. Do you know that if, I, if you're ordained before you're 30, the odds of retiring as a pastor is one out of ten. Nine out of ten will drop out. Fifty percent of them will be gone in the first three years. This is a time when the greatest... We have more schools than any time in American history for ministry, and men and women are leaving the professional ministry faster than any time in history. And between the rigors of a three- to four-year seminary education, which is theological solid, and a local church weekend conference that just gives you a few how-tos, there's a great need to help men and women know how to handle. They don't teach you how to do weddings, funerals, budgets. I mean, you do counseling and you do clinical for in the hospitals. And someone came and asked, you know, we were dreaming. Every culinary school has a restaurant attached not for making money, but so each chef can get real-time feedback. Did you know in 1912 not a single medical school was attached to a hospital? The only body you ever saw as a doctor was a corpse. And then they put you in the hospital, and I think it was Boston who put their school with a hospital, and within 12 years, everybody said, how about if our doctors worked on living people rather than dead ones? And in a way, this a call to be able to have a school with a worshiping community attached to give real-time feedback to people. And so I, after a lot of prayer and wrestling, Carol and I have, called together our leadership in the last week and told them that I have accepted the call to become the president of a new school that's located in Colorado and we'll be relocating there in November. The Here's one of the times, the first question that comes is, I mean, I love Bel Air. I, I love you. And I. this has been by far in so many ways one of the greatest chapters in my life. When I think when I first came here, 12 family camps, that in itself will do it. But no, that's the joy of the 12 family camps and sharing. We didn't even have a discipleship center. You know where we had our wedding receptions? Out on a patio out there. It was kind of like meeting on the runway at LAX. And God, by his goodness, you people have given over $76 million in the last 11 plus years since I've been here. Terry Botwick pointed out, yeah, but we've spent $82 million. But either way... And God, and you see all the good is the connections. There was no mission church when I was here the first time. Now we have one in Little Tokyo and one down at Water's Edge. We have a connection and a relationship with churches that are standing by here in this city that love Bel Air and want to help to make this continuing on the greatest city for Christ. So what we do next is that, and this is where the Presbyterian system works really well. Your elders call together and start looking for an interim pastor who just comes and helps and loves. I was just talking to someone as an interim pastor for only six weeks 
because they already found their permanent pastor, but someone who's trained to know how to handle and move ahead. And the process begins of looking for the next pastor to be able to love and to guide and to lead here. You continue to have incredible lay leadership here. Great men and women. What a classy staff. And I know that Bel Air is going to prevail and to move ahead. And I have just been so humbled. Now, I'm still around to the middle of November, so I'm not leaving at, at this time. But I want to hit the tape running and get this thing ready for the next chapter. Knox, as he was preaching to Mary, Queen of Scots, she said, Almost you persuade me. And he said, Whether me or 10,000, that you would just come to the freedom of my faith in our living Lord. And it was the sense of his preaching the truth. You know, he's buried under the parking lot of St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. By the way, it's spot number 23, if you want to know where it's at. But at his death, maybe one of the more poignant statements of this man, here lies a man who feared nor flattered any flesh. That that salty John Knox, that he didn't, kiss up to anybody and he wasn't afraid of anybody because he was so in love with the Lord and I think that when you know that that God's calling on our life what is the legacy well not only democracy you know, for a while King George called the American Revolution the Presbyterian uprising not because they were Presbyterian mostly congregational anything because of what they were advocating 16 signers, by the way, of the Declaration of Independence were Presbyterian. John Witherspoon, the only clergy member to sign it, was a Presbyterian. But the legacy is that God is strong in His people. Yes, He raises leaders. Yes, you need good leaders. But it's always been about the Holy Spirit using everyday men and women. And I think someday, wow, there's 12 years, 11 plus go by fast. You know how fast it'll be when we stand before the Lord? And my dream and my desire is that when I stand there that I, like you, will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I think one of the more illustrative moments in my ministry career about Christ was I was doing a wedding for a submariner. He was a captain on a nuclear sub and we did the premarital and he got his orders to ship out. But we set the wedding date for when he got back. Well, things as the Navy does, changes around, and he couldn't make it back on that Friday in that time for the rehearsal, but that Saturday afternoon, he was taking a special hop to get in. So we went ahead and did the rehearsal without him. And we did this wedding at one of these great old cathedrals where the aisle is so long that, you know, the bridesmaids get winded halfway down. You know, they have to stop and hydrate up to make it down to the front. And so I came out with him and all of his officers in Navy dress, and all the ladies came down beautiful one by one, one by one. And all of a sudden, she stepped out, and he started to go for it. Uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. He did no protocol. You just wait. You just wait. And as she stood there, he turned around and looked at me and asked for permission. I said, go ahead. And he ran down picked her up, brought her down. Couldn't wait when the moment, yes. As we sit here this morning, the Lord of glory, the risen Christ, sits and is looking at his Father saying, is now the time? Can I go get my church, my bride? 
And the father saying, not yet, not yet. Jesus said, only my father knows. And at some moment, God Almighty will say to God the Son, now is the time, go. And we will be with him. And the real adventure will begin. Until then, it's not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what he has done. And it is the power of everyday men and women like you and me being able to tell the good news of Christ. And that's what this table is about. This is the table. They had no idea how tough the next day would be on Good Friday. And they had no concept how glorious Sunday morning and the rest of their lives would be. This is not a Presbyterian table. It's not even a reform table. This is a table of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we invite any of you that look to Christ for salvation and only those that are willing to follow him to come and to partake. If you have children and they understand, they're invited. Otherwise, you as the parents might want to withhold the elements till they can understand what they're doing. But as we do this by intention where we take the bread and dip it in the cup, and as you crush that bread in your teeth, know that I and you should have been crushed for our sin, but we never will, never Because Christ took the full hit on that cross for us. And by the miracle of biology that this grape juice becomes a part of your body. So we ask the Holy Spirit likewise spiritually to come and fill all of our lives. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that I am breaking for you. When you eat this, you remember me. And after dinner, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood that I am pouring out for the removal of your sins. When you drink this, remember me. Paul says, For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he returns for us. Let's pray, shall we? God Almighty, I thank you for your love. And God, what can I say for my family here at Bel Air? And the Lord, even as we have months still together to walk in this journey, Lord, I I praise you and I speak with you, not them. My life will never be the same because of them. I thank you, God, that you walk in front of us and that you have set up answers to prayers we haven't even whispered yet. I thank you that you walk behind us and you forgive, you use, redeem all the dumb things we have done in our life. But I thank you most of all that you walk beside us and you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. So I pray now that you would come and set aside these elements from a common to a holy use. May they truly become spiritually the body and blood of Christ for our journey together. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of our life, grant us your shalom, your peace. In your name we pray. Amen.